Smog. 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 Dude, smog. 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 Damn it, smog. 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 All right. All right. All right. Beer. Oh yes. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Digital Noise, the home entertainment review podcast that never makes you sad, but always gives you the blues. I am your host, Brian Salisbury, and joining me from beyond the eighth dimension is my parallel reality counterpart, Mr. Richard Whitaker. Hey, up again. Hey, up again. How are you, Richard? Um, um, gradely. Rick gradely. That's a real word. <laughs> Don't that? give me that look. I Gra- thought that... Gradely. Rick gradely? Rick gradely. Is that a, like a Irish detective or something? <laughs> Gradely. He only solves potato-related <laughs> cases. I don't know if that's offensive coming from you or not, but I'm, I'm just going to let it accurate. fly. I'm going to go with. <laughs> well, I want to remind you, if you want to hear more uh, offensive UK bashing from our only UK <laughs> correspondent, uh, you can go to iTunes, where we have a back catalog of all our material. You can also find us on Stitcher. If you want to follow the show directly on Twitter, you can follow us at DigiNoiseCast. That's D-I-G-I NoiseCast. Or you can follow the website at one of us net. And uh, you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. And do consider becoming a subscriber to the site. That's how we keep bringing you this content. And we really enjoy doing so. Um, yeah, I think that's all the housekeeping. So it's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show we crack open the most questionable of coffers we call... Got mail. Yes, the letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. Really liking that uh, those turkeys that you're drawing for Thanksgiving. You know they're missing a few feathers. Oh, I'm. I hadn't seen your hands, dude. I'm. I'm really oh, sorry. Dude, dude, <sighs> uncle, uncle. Yikes. Uh, well, let's move on to our first question from Stephen Lara. Hello, asked, Stephen. Uh, what are your favorite actors being drama queens on set stories? I'll let you start. Uh, well, eschewing the go-to, good for you, oh, you and me are done professionally, you're a nice guy, but we're done professionally, eschewing that, uh, I'm actually gonna go with one of the great madmen in cinema history, Mr. Klaus Kinski. Uh, he was in a horror movie in the 80s called Crawl Space, which I highly recommend. I think uh, Scream Factory actually they, put they it did. out. They put a very nice dish. Nice Blu-ray. Um, it is a movie in which he plays a lunatic... Who, Hang on, uh, wait. Yeah, no, wait, wait. Let me be more specific. Who is the landlord of this building, and he spends his nights crawling around in the in the vents, like spying on the women who stay there. Awesome. Which is weird that it's called crawl space because it actually could, should be called vents. It could be. It should be called vents. That would be like calling diehard crawl space. Yeah, like it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but anyway, apparently he did not get along with this director and, or anyone. Well, or anyone ever. But uh, so this director was doing his very best to to rein in the madness of Kinski. And one day, one day he goes, "Okay, action!" And Klaus Kinski, instead of acting, just starts screaming. And he starts going on this rant about, all my life, all my life, people are saying action, action, action. It drives me crazy. They yell this at me. And the director very calmly, okay, Klaus, what would you like me to say instead of action? And he goes, 
just say Klaus. Just when you're ready to start, just say Klaus, and I will begin acting. And he's like, okay. So on the next take, he goes, and Klaus. And once again, screaming, and Klaus starts going, all my life people are yelling at me, Klaus, Klaus, why does they do this, why? So it's like there was no way to please him at all. And in fact, one of the producers on that movie noticed how highly Klaus Kinski was insured with life insurance with the studio. So he's like, if you happen to accidentally kill him at this point, uh, we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't be too upset about it. So they actually like form this this very uh, tenuous murder plot to get rid of Klaus Kinski to collect the insurance money. So there you have it. <laughs> which is which is fair. I think I'm less gonna go for an actor meltdown and more for a director meltdown. Oh, I like this. Which is actually caught on film. Um, and it was when uh, Norman Mailer was directing Rip Torn in Maidenhead. And, wow. Uh, they finally... You ripped- said a lot of words, and the only ones that most people heard were Rip Torn. Yeah, <laughs> Rip Torn. A man who who does not hold back when he's in a, a bad mood. Um, and uh, he got very, very angry with Norman Mailer finally, and they ended up in a massive fist fight. And these are two men who what? like getting into fist fights. The camera crew was there, and the the complete meltdown fight uh, was caught wow. on camera. And it's basically Rip Torn just leveling Norman Mailer. Because as many people have learnt over the years, uh, do not get into a fight with uh, with Norman with, with Rip Torn because he will pretty much kill you because he is hard as fucking nails. Don't get in a fight with Rip Torn. Never go in against the Sicilian when death is on, on the, the line. line. <laughs> and never get into a land war in Southeast Asia. That's right. These are things I've learned from the movies. Uh, thank you for that question, Stephen. Uh, Christopher Pistol uh, asks, uh, in between the barrage of Halloween movies and Christmas movies, I'm going through and watching a ton of Criterion titles for the month of November. Good for you. What are just a handful that you would consider absolutely must-see? Apparently, Christopher has seen very little of the Criterion movies. Oh, um, actually, a really good recent release they did uh, was... Eyes Without a Face. Oh, yes. Uh, which is not only a great film and incredibly influential on punk, particularly on punk, punk culture. Mm-hmm. Um, very weird, ethereal, proto-body horror, just beautifully shot. But the, the great thing about it, in the extras, um, the uh, the director, Georges, last name, currently escaping me, um, he was actually, he started off as a documentarian. And one of the uh, pieces that they include as an extra here is one of his most famous documentaries, uh, The Blood of the Beasts. And it is amazing. It is a, an examination of life in uh, the slaughterhouses of Paris uh, during the 50s. It, I mean, this is, it is brutal. The, you know, this is not a, oh, and the animal goes into a sealed room and stuff happens. I mean, this is where your meat comes from. Um, it is it is very hard to watch, but it's an important, you know, it's an important documentary because it told people who are becoming increasingly urbanized, okay, this is where your meat comes from and it happens in this area of town that you don't want to go to, you don't want to talk about, but let's face, you know, you want to eat the meat, just let's talk about what it is. And it, it, it's pretty brutal, but it is an amazing um, and vital piece of cinema. But I saw that face by itself is just worth seeing and it's a beautiful restoration it's one of their best restorations in a while Georges Franjou is the name of that director yeah um I you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna set aside for the moment the movies that are kind of the the tentpole uh classic films that have been released by Criterion and by that I mean things like on the waterfront seven Samurai 
Uh, and I'm going to go with some of my favorite movies that have been released by Criterion are um, City Lights, mm. uh, which is not only my favorite Chaplin film, but just one of my favorite movies in general. It's a movie that the ending always makes me cry. Always. Yeah. Every single time. It's such a sweet, understated, beautiful movie. Um, and then The Killing, which might be my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie. Yeah. Uh, which is a fantastic heist film that he did with Sterling Hayden. Back when he did plots. Back when he did plots. Uh, and then Ace in the Hole, I think, is a very overlooked classic American film. Billy Wilder mm. uh, and um, uh, Kirk Douglas. Kind of a almost a blueprint for the kind of film that would that would become uh, There Will Be Blood. It's about somebody who is so obsessed with achieving success in a certain industry that they completely lose their humanity. And it's, you know, it's about a newspaper man who manipulates this cave-in disaster and uses the one trapped victim sort of as his uh, his meal ticket, his way back into the limelight. And it's really fascinating movie. And then on top of that, Blowout, which is uh, a great Brian De Palma film, my favorite Brian De Palma film, uh, and The Third Man. So yeah. I'd say, I'd, I think all of those would probably be necessary watches for one reason or another. Yeah, and pretty much any of their releases from Japan in the fifties as well, in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, because they're really the only people who've done good re-releases, good releases of a lot of yeah. the art house stuff that was coming out in the wake of World War Two. Um, and they've done an amazing job of archiving them. I think that's really an, if Criterion goes down for anything um, in the history books, it's, it's for doing that. So pretty much anything that they release out of Japan pre nineteen sixty five. And you know what? It, I would also say that uh, it's not Blu-ray, but their clip series on Nikatsu from japan is absolutely incredible it's uh post-war it's a 1960s uh gangster films yes uh made with a very french new wave kind of twist to them and uh yeah they're 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 brilliant and i highly recommend that that eclipse set on nakatsu great question guys thank you so much we're going to slide the letterbox back under chris's bed for the next week right next to a lot of piles of dirty things we don't want to discuss much Ew. like the slaughterhouses in Paris. Ew. And we're going to move on to reviews. Reminding you once again, everything we talk about, there will be an Amazon link right here on the page. If you click on that link and go to Amazon, even if you don't buy that item, just getting to Amazon via our link, anything you buy will benefit the site. And we really do appreciate it. And we're going to start this week with The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog. Oh, you got the pronunciation right this time. Damn it. <laughs> you are so cool. To the moon, Ow. Richard. Uh, so this is, of course, the second of three movies about one Ugh. book and some Ugh. other books tacked on. Okay, I'll, you know, I'll be real honest. I'm really over. I'm just so over the Middle-earth stuff. Like, I loved the trilogy. I loved, uh, you know, Fellowship. I loved Two Towers. And I really, really, really love Return of the King. And I was excited for The Hobbit, and then The Hobbit came out, and it was just like, oh, God, watching fucking dwarves play grab-ass for 20 minutes. and being, Five hours of dwarves coming through a door. Yeah, like you're being introduced <laughs> to them when they're off-screen by Gandalf just going, burr, 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 burr. Like, that's how little you care about defining your characters, that you're literally introducing them with some old guy mumbling their names when they're not even on screen. <laughs> so, I will say this for Desolation of Smog. Um... I actually liked it better than uh, the than the first movie. Who the name I can't even remember. Unexpected Journey. Yeah, Is it the first. Uh, I liked it better, but that's not a huge compliment. No, uh, I mean, 
If you know the book, it's almost even hard to describe which section of the book this is because this has so little to do at this point with anything that's in in The Hobbit. Um, it's ugh, God. I, this is my complaint about, and I think I think it was bad problem with the Lord of the Rings films, but you could overlook it. But it's really being reinforced now. These are joyless. They yeah. are mirthless, humorless dour adaptations of books and the hobbit is funny and it's fun and it has a lightness to it which is completely missing here uh i mean basically in this bit it's kind of oh well they kind of you know they want the dwarves and and bilbo and gandalf wander in to to frame and they bump into a shape changer and then they run into some elves and then they get in some barrels and then they get to the you know, they get to meet Smaug and then they ha- go over Splash Mountain oh, and, and and then they end up in Lake Town but there's like this whole huge amount of new stuff that is crammed in there that honestly it doesn't need and I've got to say doesn't work uh, Toriel I see why they put her in there are a complete lack of female characters in the book yes we all understand this uh, but this huge subplot that comes up with Toriel and she's pining for Legolas, who isn't in the book at all uh, and is purely there because Goldilocks can't get any work anymore. <laughs> now the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies have kicked him out. And then she and then they they have this interspecies relationship with a dwarf. That and it's is like so one forced. of the dwarfs so who you forced. can't even remember who it is. Yeah, one um, of them. Yeah. Now there's major. I think it's Winkin, maybe Blinkin, uh... Nod, perhaps. <laughs> Curly Larry and Ormo. Yeah. Um, and then that's what passes for character development. And here's the other big problem. It was really clear in um, The Lord of the Rings that Peter Jackson does not like dwarves. He's not interested in the dwarves as characters. Uh, you know, I mean, he makes Gimli basically a, a clown. There is a there is a dwarf tossing joke at one point. Well, now he's got, a, a, you know, nine hours. Oh, dear God, nine hours. We've still got three of this to go. Where he's, you know, he's stuck with the dwarves. They're who this book, these, this book and these three films, three films are about. And he doesn't know what to do with them. He mm. still wants to make them clown figures. Yeah. And the, and he's still completely enamored of how wonderful the elves are. He doesn't know what to do with them. And it's really clear. And every time they have a dwarf, they have a, a touching moment, it's by him making them more human and mm. not understanding how to create them as dwarf characters. And this really, really bugs me and then the final act which got this the in with final act we still got another fucking film we we'll probably go. have six more oh, movies to go at this god point. it's just an endurable um where bilbo and the dwarves finally meet smaug the, the the dragon who is beautifully done and perfectly voiced by benedict cumberbatch i mean that's you know what really holds you for the last hour of this film of yes, this folks, 12 hour last, movie last hour um and but a the repartee between uh, Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch, which should be fantastic. You've got two of the best people working on British television at the moment. You've basically got a Sherlock reunion, yeah. and it's kind of it's kind of flat. Mm-hmm. Those scenes aren't as, as you know, brilliant as, as they could or should be, particularly if you're throwing this much money and this much talent at it. And then I won't tell you what how you get a payoff on this, but there is this ridiculous long sequence that's. Totally, it feels like you're running through the end of a late era LucasArts point and click adventure to have a huge <laughs> thing happen. And then its payoff is not actually that anything really happens, but that you get this one really pretty shot of Smaug looking really pretty flying. 
yeah. that's the payoff for basically half an hour of the film. True. And I'm like, are you are you kidding me? This this has no structure. That's, that's, that's a real problem. This film has no structure at all. It doesn't have any second act continuity to it. It's just stuff that happens in a greater thing. And I think, honestly, I think Peter Jackson at this point, this franchise has overstayed its welcome. Yes, it's well made. We get that. But honestly, I would much rather that this kind of money and time and effort was dedicated to something like a, you know, 18 hour adaptation of a whole bunch of Terry Pratchett books mm-hmm. for HBO. Yeah. I would love that because that you've got enough material. You can feel the padding here. And that is the saddest thing to say about a franchise that was one of the most important franchises of the last decade. When it was announced long ago and, and several movies ago uh, that Peter Jackson was taking over The Hobbit from Guillermo del Toro. I had this this fear. I mean, there was like, oh, cool, he's going back. But then I had this this nagging fear that maybe what we were seeing is a man who cannot let go, who cannot leave Middle Earth. Because if you think about it, the movies he's made outside of the Lord of the Rings films since the Lord of the Rings films have not been critically well accepted. I mean, you have King Kong, which I really didn't like. And then you have The Lovely Bones, which Which is terrible, which is pretty much universally panned. Yeah. Um, So I I really did. And especially when I heard, okay, now one Hobbit movie is going to be three. I was like, oh, this has become sad. This has become about a filmmaker who just can't let go of the of the one place he feels like he can be successful and as you've pointed out and I agree with every single one of your criticisms it's getting to the point where he can't he's he's lost the magic even within this world and yeah I think you're right it's definitely overstated it's welcome Peter Jackson is ne- is never going to pull what he clearly wanted to do with the lovely bones which was to manage a Spielberg level jump as a director. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who is never going to make a Saving Private Ryan. He's never going to make a Lincoln. It's it's just beyond him. And I think we truly are seeing his limits as a filmmaker. And he hasn't. He, this is the saddest thing. He has not evolved as a filmmaker in a decade. The tools have changed around him and got a bit better. But the fact that you know these do play so well with the first ones. I think it's, yeah, in some ways a tribute. But in other ways, it's it's it just feels static. Yeah. It, you know, you're just looking at the actors getting older. And honestly, we, we, no, we don't need any more Radagast. Well, and we don't thi- need many, any more wizard politics. That is just padding. Yeah, and the thing is, the tools have improved, but he's not using them wisely. And one of the things I want to talk about the Blu-ray, and I'm so happy about this, is that you don't have to watch it in 48 frames per second. Oh. Peter Jackson is still the only filmmaker who is insisting upon this technology, this awful soap opera-looking bullshit visual presentation that thankfully, you know, our screening last year, I had to sit through 48 frames per second. I was just like, this looks horrible. Yeah. And, and luckily, this, you know, the screening for this was not. It was in 24 frames like a human being should watch a movie. <laughs> and luckily, there's there's not really a good way for a Blu-ray to even present a movie in 48 frames per second. So you don't have to sit through that with the Blu-ray. And it is crammed with extras. But as we have learned in the past, I am I am wary of even recommending this because you know that within the next couple of years, there's going to be like a super mega edition trilogy pack that's like 12 hours per movie. And and then there's going to be the, the full six discs. Yeah. Uh, six disc set. So it's which, like, how do we the, even recommend which, people buy this? Which they're going to do a 3D conversion of the first trilogy. I will swear blind. That will happen. Oh, yeah. No doubt. And then they can sell you the... Um, Three discs and and yeah, you know, just getting the the basic edition of this is just like this Leviathan thing that is like ah uh, you know yeah I mean the, the sad thing is 
And this is what they, they have always bet on. The people are going to get this for complete com- completion's sake. And that is the thing that is going to make the third film successful, whether it deserves it or not. And honestly, if it's going to be like what he did with Return of the King, there's going to be 15 endings. And, and this is the thing that drives me maddest about what Peter Jackson has done. He's th- He's taken significant stuff out of the books and thrown it away and replaced it with his own stuff. And I'm okay with loose and creative adaptations of of books. Mm. Uh, I mean, I love L.A. Confidential, which completely rewrites pretty much everything about the book, but is true to the spirit. This is not true to the spirit because there is it's not fun. Mm. And The Hobbit is fun. I mean, it's got dark elements undoubtedly in there, but at the end of the day, it's witty and it's charming. It's the most charming uh, of... Um, Tolkien's books yeah. and there's none of that here and that is a, and this is about Peter Jackson making three more films that fit into his franchise it's not anything to do with the books and I, honestly I think at this at this point the book is better yeah and, and and that's the thing again is like even if you really liked Desolation of Smog, like I I I can't in good conscience, even though this is a well-put-together Blu-ray, I can't in good conscience tell you to go out and buy it because, again, in a year, two years, there's going to be some super mega edition. And then I totally agree that they'll probably, you know, retro-convert the original trilogy to 3D and then release that in a six-pack. And then it's on and on it goes. Like, this is one of the most, you know, and not just, like, and it's so... It's so symptomatic of the problem that Peter Jackson is in right now is that Warner Brothers can't stop going to the Lord of the Rings well any more than Peter Jackson can. And, uh, yeah, so... This is is season 13 of The Simpsons. (laughs) Very true. Very true. We're going to move on from there to talk about uh, Maleficent. Speaking of unnecessary things, Uh, here comes Maleficent. A.K.A. Disney could not get the rights to Wicked. (laughs) That is... That, let, let's cut to the chase. Much as much as you know, uh, 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 Desolation of Smaug exists because uh, you know that's what Warner's needs to do. This was a. This is so obviously a combination of a corporate project because they got the rights to something and they want to do something with it, mm-hmm. um, and a monumental vanity project for Angel- Angelina Jolie. Yeah, and, and, was, and that she had to spend a lot of time at the vanity to, uh, to create is, that look. I will cut to the chase and say I actually enjoyed uh, Snow White and the Huntsman more. Oh, wow. I, I was going to say you could cut the chase with her cheekbones because uh, they are razor sharp in yeah. this movie. This, ba- to, this basically is um, Sleeping Beauty from Maleficent the Witch's point of view. Mm-hmm. But you don't understand. She was just misunderstood by the men in her life. Yeah. And it's so... This is so clumsy. Yeah. This is so cack-handed. And it feels... It's it's not just that you could describe this as a combination of certain other projects and films and properties. Mm-hmm. It is those things. It right. absolutely is those things welded together and done in an annoying pointless way that I just again charmless mm-hmm. no zero personality and, and you know what let villains be villains I agree I agree 100% why do you have to take away the things that I love why do you have to make my favorite villain in the entire Disney universe 
like this completely cloying i have to find true love or my life goes completely to shit yeah. like it, to me it's like i heard people talking about this as a feminist movie i'm like i think it's exactly the opposite yeah i think this is a movie about one man uh wrongs you and you become evil forever until that man loves you again and then everything's fine i'm like what kind of fucking lesson is that teaching yeah. exactly yeah i don't understand that at all but here's my here's my bigger issue you mentioned wicked the, the reason i like wicked is because at the end of that story she She's not a hero. She's still the fucking Wicked Witch of the West. It's just that we now have a, a new context, a new perspective as to how she got there. And if that's what Maleficent was, I would have been okay with it. But instead, they got to do the fucking Disney thing, which is that they give it such a ridiculous happy ending. It's like, oh, Maleficent's good. And blah, I'm like, no, 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 it, no, no. It's not just that. It's neo-Disney because... Who gives us that incredible evil villainess? You know, one of the most monstrous figures in the in the history of cinema. Disney gives us that. This is modern Disney rewriting classic Disney's history and doing it clumsily, mm-hmm. inartfully. Uh, some of the dwarves, some of the the, the fairy tale creatures. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to give a shout out here to uh, a, a friend of both of ours, Mr. Cargill. Uh, and I, the bits where she's in the fairyland at the beginning, and I kept thinking of how much better his depiction of you know the fairylands in Dreams and Shadows is because that has sharp edges and nastiness. And, and this is the this biggest, is Candyland. They live in is, fucking Candyland. This is Disney turning Maleficent into a Disney princess. Yes. And that's capital D, capital P, Disney princess. That's what the marketing department wants. And what is the point of that? What is the point of any of that? There's so many ways. I mean, they, they, I mean, wait, are you saying Maleficent got DP'd in this movie? Because that might make people go no, see it. We no, need to be careful with how behave. we categorize this. Uh, yeah, and, and it's funny because you compare it to uh, again, uh, Snow White, uh, Snow White and the Huntsman. Uh, I think that's actually got a much better message. <laughs> For, for girls, you know, it's like you're not automatically just dependent upon the emotional whims of men. Yeah. Uh, so you know, the the queen is a much more rounded character, uh, and and Snow White is a much more rounded character. Which so, you know, Snow White, you, you don't have to be revived by borderline date rape. Yeah, yeah, and it just this is, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Angela Carter's uh, kind of revisionist fairy tales. Uh, the Bloody Chamber, I think, is a book that if you haven't read, you really need to. You know, that's that's where uh, Company of Wolves and everything, you know, that kind of entire canon comes from. Um, and this is a, a pale, manipulative shadow of what those could be. I really, I kept seeing better films in my head. And when mm-hmm. one of those better films is Snow White and the Huntsman, you've got trouble. Yeah. When you have to change the story to fit this sort of... Uh, this agenda of a happy ending, you're really doing it wrong. If you allow Maleficent to be Maleficent and yet you give us sort of the building blocks, like, yes, she started off good. Yes, these are the things that happened to her. She remains Maleficent, but now we feel like she's multifaceted. That would be great. I would be, oh, that's exactly what Wicked was, and I was all for that. But it's just, you know, and then everything else about this movie is either really just ridiculously bland or it's clumsy or it's it just it doesn't work and the the three fairies juno temple oh dear um, god oh they were who who was it It was juno temple l fanning and no 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 juno tempo uh, juno tempo juno temple imelda staunton and uh leslie manville and i just didn't understand why they had to go with like 
making them like CG cherubs instead of just, you know, like, like, again, let's go back to Snow White and the Huntsman and what they did with the dwarves. They were the actual actors and they used digital manipulation to make them look shorter. Yeah. Why couldn't this movie do something like that? Yeah. And, and they just, they, they're super creepy. Their character arc doesn't work either. Yeah. And they just disappear in the third act for no readily apparent reason. Uh, you know, it, this just, this needed somebody coming in doing at least two more script polishes, mm-hmm. a much better idea of what it was supposed to be. And honestly, it just needed, you know, I don't see the reason for this other than, like I said, they couldn't get the rights to Wicked. And once you've made that decision, which is purely a corporate, uh, you know, driven by your IP department, uh, kind of decision, you've got people making decisions which are purely commercial. Yes, every director, every filmmaker make commer- makes decisions that are at some point commercial. This is commercial decisions that don't make any sense, even commercially. Yeah, and I will say this, I, you know, in terms We're of... We're in a negative mood. Today. Yeah, in, in terms of this not all being negative, I will say that it seems like Angelina Jolie has wanted to play this role for a while. Like, yeah. she is just eating up every moment of screen time she possibly can. And I have to give her credit for that. It's clear that she loves this character. It's clear that she is really giving it her all. So I can't falter there. I also like Charlotte Copley as, uh, as the prince, or, or I'm sorry, the king, I guess, from, if you remember the, the Disney version, the king at the beginning, uh, he's playing sort of the, he's playing that character, but with, with a very, weirdly racist edge to it. Like, I'm not really sure, like, destroy all fairies. Okay, that's fine. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I I couldn't get into this movie conceptually. Uh, I could have if it hadn't insisted upon giving it a happy ending. And I think just sort of, sort of the... Uh, the spectacle of it. Like, the, the things that were clearly supposed to be this larger-than-life spectacle just feels like window dressing. It feels like a distraction, really. It feels like a smokescreen thrown up to keep you from thinking about how clumsy the story is. Yeah. So I can't, I can't readily recommend uh, Maleficent either, but uh, stick with us, dear listeners. I promise this isn't all negative, but that being said, let's move on to planes, fire and rescue. (laughs) Wow. I really should not have put all these. (laughs) I think I'll skip. Hang in there, folks. Hang in there. (laughs) It gets better and in a very unexpected way pretty soon. So this is the, let's see if I can figure this out. Oh, it's Dane Cook. The, The sequel to the spin-off of the least interesting Pixar movie right before they started doing sequels to that least interesting... Oh, my God. Let me try this again. Um, it's the sequel to the spin-off of the least interesting Pixar movie. Yeah. It is the sequel to the Cars spin-off, Planes, and this time... Uh, our our lead character Dusty Crophopper, I think is his name, voiced by <laughs> oh, voiced by Dane, Dane fucking Cook. Cook. Oh, that should give you that should give you a sense of like how far Disney has kind of fallen within this franchise. That they they go from Paul Newman, Paul Newman being one of the lead characters in in Cars, to Dane Cook being your. I mean, I'll even take Owen Wilson with his crooked nose and everything. I will take Owen Wilson as a voice actor over Dane Cook. Well, more importantly, uh, somewhere between uh, Cars, no, sorry, Planes having its trailer released and actually being released, um, they actually recast the voices because it was what's his name from Two and a Half Men. It was John Cryer. It yeah, was that's John right. Cryer, and then mysteriously, the film arrives, and suddenly, holy it's shit, Dane you're right. Cook. I, okay, yeah. I'm glad you said that because I thought it was crazy. I was like, wait, nope, I thought nope. John Cryer was involved in this yep. somehow. But then I was like, oh, maybe that was just the first one. Holy shit, what is going on with this company? And and it should be noted that, and, and if, unless I'm wrong here, and you can correct me, Rich, if I am, but wasn't Plane sort of the first 
Pixar-y type movie to be released since they reunified Disney and Pixar. Yeah, and this isn't even actually a Pixar. This is no, this Disney's is pure home. Disney. This yeah. is this is Disney's like, and it's not even main Disney. It's Disney's, yeah. you know, super cheapo Disney Toon knock, Studios knockoff wing. And I'm like, oh god, yeah. Uh, basically, uh, the plot so much as there there is uh, one to talk about. Dusty crop flopper. Um, <laughs> Uh, after winning the world championship in the first film, when he was afraid to fly, now he can fly, but now he's burnt out his gearbox. And for some reason, even though he's a plane that was like just like every other plane, they can't find a replacement gearbox for him. And I'm like, well, they've got fingers. How do they? Ma-? There's still the eternal <laughs> question of, of, of where this world came from, because this is even more baffling than, than Cybertron. Um, <laughs> Where, where the argument was, well, gears evolved, shut up and deal with it. This is, you know, stuff happens that you're like, I don't even know how this works. This is all super creepy. Uh, there is a point where they actually say, I'm going to go to the junkyard and find you some parts. I'm like, so you basically have a body Grave part? robbery. They're this grave is- robbing. That's exactly what they're doing. Which is, if you remember in uh, uh, Transformers, uh, one of the Transformers movies, exactly that happens where uh, Optimus like puts on parts of somebody else. And I'm like, ew, ew, ew. That's, that's like, like Hannibal wearing, Lecter. That's like wearing somebody's skull as a helmet. That's, this that's is just creepy. That's fucking Hannibal Lecter for yeah. robots. The, uh, this whole thing, it's, you know, it's cloying. It's dull. Ugh, I I, re- I resent actually having to spend so much time on this film because this really is it. Ugh. You know, this is intended to keep small children who liked the first ones um, just distracted for another hour and a half. Yeah. Sell you another disc. There is nothing. This is you know, if if the Hobbit is a thing that shouldn't exist at this point uh, for anything other than corporate reasons, this really is just like: is there a barrel left to be dredged? Uh, you know, the fact that this has come out in the same week that Disney has announced that they're going to be uh, doing Toy Story 4, a, a film that really there is no call for whatsoever at this point. This is just, you you really clearly have no ideas or you're terrified of your own shadow or you haven't worked out that, yes, the most artistically successful thing that's come out of your animation division in years was Frozen, where you took a fucking leap of faith. They're not prepared to take leaps of faith anymore. Yeah. They'll be, you know, Pixar's becoming the sequel machine that Disney he was a few years ago. Yeah, I think that's that's truly sad. And this is, you know, elite. The only good thing about this is this does not have Pixar's name on it because this looks yeah. cheap, feels cheap. Nothing about this speaks to you know, unless you're a very undemanding child who's going to wander past that that stanchion at the at uh, Target and go planes, planes until you sedate them with this. There is no other reason to have this in your world. What happened to John Cryer? I'm so fascinated by this now. I need to go back and. Try and uncover the maybe, story. Maybe you've gone to a fight with Norman Mailer on set. No, that could yeah. be it. I, I, I want to say this, too. Um, so, if you're thinking that... Okay, I, oh, wait, I didn't even finish the plot. So, plot? Uh, Krusty Coxlobber uh, can't race anymore, so instead he's he's sent up to join these uh, forest firefighting uh, planes in, in another little town or garage or however they fucking break down this anthropomorphized nightmare. Um, so it's just like him learning to help people instead of race for his own personal glory. And I understand that one of the arguments that people are going to make is like, 
this movie is is designed to honor you know firefighters and and I get that and I I don't obviously if I was a firefighter I'd be insulted. Thank you. I don't want to disparage firefighters, but I really think the idea of anthropomorphizing the vehicles they use takes the human element out of it so much that you're almost saying you know if fuck you firefighters the planes can do it themselves. So I'm not sure how that's a fitting tribute really to people that risk their lives actually flying these things. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. And oh my god, the music in this. Oh my god, it's not. Not even top 40. It's like flop 40. It's just, it's country pop. Oh my God, it's horrible. Oh my God, it's so horrible. So one of them is like, my daddy was a firefighter and I'm a firefighter too. And I'm like, oh my God, it's a mental patient singing a country song. My so it's a country was on song. fire and I'm on fire too. <laughs> Pirates uh... apparently singing country. <laughs> but if you're interested, this does have a host of supplements. <laughs> So if you just can't get enough of Sorry, planes, I just seem to become muttly for that for a second. Yeah, you did. If you really just can't get enough of planes, that two movies weren't enough to sate that thirst. Go ahead and and check out all the uh, all the high definition supplements on this Blu-ray. Which again, I'm not even sure why this movie exists, and I think we need to put out an APB because the real John Cryer might be missing, and we we need to. We go miss find him. you, John. We, we love you. dudes. We miss you, Ducky. Come back, Ducky. Come back to us. Well, moving on as fast as we possibly can from planes, we're going to talk about something that is going to make us very happy and finally break the mold of negativity around here. Yay! And that is Step Up to Win! <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Step Up oh, 4. This is Step, step up, up No, four. no. This is Step, step Up, up five. 5. This is Step Up 5. Oh, my God. I am an unabashed fan of this franchise. I don't even care. Yes, the acting is terrible. Yes, the stories are, like, as simple as they could possibly be. It, it, writing, writing a script for a step-up movie is like putting your name down on the SATs where you just get 200 points for spelling your name correctly. That's about as much thought that has to go into something as... Uh, that's as much thought as has to go into a, a script for a step-up movie. But it doesn't even matter. It does not fucking matter because the dancing, the dance sequences, absolutely amazing. The people they actually get to be in these movies is, you know, these people are tremendously talented dancers, and it's amazing. To, it's like when you watch the movie Drumline, and you're like, I don't give a shit about the story, but the drumming's really cool. Like, that's exactly what's going on here. It's like, you really don't care. Like, you know exactly what's going to happen in the story. But, but the story, it, which, as a friend of mine has pointed out, is actually uh, 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 Step Up Avengers Assemble. It, it is. And in fact, while I was watching it, I, I kept thinking, wow, they're going through this Marvel Cinematic Universe adherence to uh to to continuity that is absolutely unnecessary but they start okay so okay so how do how to explain this so <laughs> so in step up 3 you were introduced to uh no damn it yes no step step up 3 is is the, no hang on so okay so in this movie it's the crew from step up 4 yeah now step up 4 uh was called uh step up the Miami street. was no was this step revolution up the street? Oh, Step Up Revolution. Yeah, Step Up Revolution. Okay. Uh, Step Step Up for Miami Heat, I think, was its actual official title. Uh, and it was all about sort of dance as a form of, like, Occupy Wall Street protest. And the great thing about that movie is that it ends with that whole, like, we're for the people and we're fighting corporate bullying and we're fighting corporate greed, landing an unexpected contract with Nike for $50,000 and celebrating it. And I'm like... Revolution is dead. Um, so in this movie, that crew has now moved to New York, but they can't seem to make it as dancers. So all of them, except the main guy from the fourth one, leave, and he joins up with the crew from the first three movies. 
to form a new crew that then has to take on his old crew and another evil crew. It's like, oh my god. An evil dance crew. An evil dance crew called the Grim Knights. So in the fifth one, uh, we have have the girl from... Not Step Up 3, because that was our girl, Sharni Vincent, who is the only person they can't seem to bring back outside of Channing Tatum. Like, even Channing Tatum had a cameo at the beginning of Step Up 2, but they can't seem to bring him back, and for some reason, Sharni Vincent, they can't seem to get her. We we need Sharni back. We do get Brianna Revigan. Yes, yes, who uh, was in Step Up 2 Mm -hmm. and is absolutely amazing. So again, you can start to see how... The continuities, the different character bases, the different storylines from all of these previous films that could have been completely separate from one another are starting to win their way around each other in this massive cinematic co- uh, universe that they've built. Yeah. Um. Okay. I, I. Let me. Let me cut to the chase here on this. I was pretty much ready to uh, throttle Brian for making me watch a Step Up movie. Um, Little did you know. Richard. Oh dear God, I love this so much. It's so good. It's just in. It's yes. It's big and cartoony. But uh, if you want to know how to shoot an action sequence, watch how the dance sequences in this are shot. Which is very simple. You get people that can do it. You make them your stars, and then you get the camera out of the way. You do just enough editing to enhance exactly. how you see them perform, but you get a real feeling this is one single shot. This is one single moment. There are five or six kind of big choreographed sequences. There's a da- there's two different dance battles, uh, one of which is, is in a boxing ring, which is completely insane and beautiful. The final sequence, which is final sequences which take place um in Vegas. Yeah. Uh, and somebody went, well, we need to do Vegas level production values on this. Um, is just astounding. It also has the most adorable, silent, romantic subplot. Yes. With adorable robot dancer the couple. Robot dancers. Which oh. is so, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is so Let me, let me try to do the, the rom-com trailer. He's a dancing robot. She's, She's a dancing, dancing robot. robot. <laughs> and it's just this time, and, it, and it's, this whole subplot is, probably takes about a minute and a half of screen time. There is no dialogue. It is done through dance yes and is beautiful and heartwarming and they never break character once there's no moment where they go ah we're actual people it's like no we robot dance all the time that's who we are they're gonna dance together until he pop and locks the question Uh oh yeah Uh, i did i i shouldn't this is not the kind of film i should be going that like this is this is perilously close to being over to the dark side richard Love these movies like I do. Should I just should I just say it now? Should I just say it now? Do you want me to get it out of the way now? Yes, do it, do it. This is my pick of the week. Yes, yes, I'm so happy to hear that. Come back, subscribers. It's okay. This really is like this is this is insanely well made cinema. This is this is the raid two of dance movies. This is. Big and stupid, but they they understand. Like we're making a dance movie. Yeah. We know we're not making the world's yeah. greatest, most earth-shaking narrative. We're not trying to change anybody's mind about how the world operates. There's an evil Lady Gaga figure uh, doing the rounds. Yeah, you know, there's nothing here that you couldn't show. You you, you couldn't sit down with your ten year old niece and watch this. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's absolutely one of the sweetest, most innocent films you can possibly watch. But it's so well done. You know, there is a commitment to going... And this is one of the things I love about this film. A lot of people could have done a really bad, just throw it out the window, make it as bad as possible, don't care kind of sequel. Mm -hmm. This is people who go, we understand what we're doing, 
and we want to do it as well on its terms as we possibly humanly can. Yeah. And that that is what this film creates. You like, could like, use bless its bless its little con uh, little cotton candy heart. True. And you you could use a lot of words to describe this, but lazy and half-assed are not words you could oh, possibly use. And that's what I love about it is they go all out. And not only do you forgive the bad acting because you know that they're hiring people who can actually do this for the reason that Richard said so that they can actually shoot this and not have to teach an actor how to do it in step so it was like cut 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 like action sequences are but not only that by this point in the franchise if you don't love at least a couple of these like you know not not quality thespians but amazing dancers you you have no heart i'm sorry moose Moose is my boy. I love Moose. Any any step up movie we get to see Moose is a good step up movie, and that has been every step up movie I think since the second one. And he and his his girl Camille, uh, played by Allison Stoner, are the most adorable couple. Oh my god! In the in Step Up Three, they have this beautiful little. They're courting each other. They do this like singing in the rain, Fred Astaire inspired little. It's so fucking cute. And in this movie, they're like they're married, and it's adorable. Like. I just can't get over how precious these two are, yeah. and they're great. They're great dance partners. Moose is ridiculous. If you want, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna throw this out there right now. Adam Savani, if you are making, if anyone of anyone listening is making a dance movie, save up all of your money to get Adam Savani. That kid who plays Moose is fucking phenomenal. Yeah, and should be in every dance movie ever till the end of time. So I I love this movie, and I especially love. So part of the plot is that they have to submit an audition tape. Uh, to get into this, like, Vortex dance competition. And the video they make is this, like, Bride of Frankenstein, Universal Monsters-inspired Mad Scientist Lab dance sequence. Holy flirking schnit is it incredible. In, uh, in t- using Tesla coils. Yes. Um, Not enough dance movies use Tesla coils anymore. Uh, and it, well, I think the only sequence that actually beats that for me... Uh, is when the two the 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 oh they they hate each other but they kind of like each other romantic leads uh, manage to break into a, a, um, a, a an amusement park after dark yeah and it's this really funny flirt dance sequence that honestly you could have taken anything from that mm-hmm. and put that into a you know one of the kind of post Ginger Rogers fred astaire movies yeah when he's kind of doing the kind of slightly goofier romantic stuff and like the not as traditional dance stuff you could have put that in there put him in those parts it would have worked in the same way you could have shot it in the same way it's beautifully put together yeah. this is this is classic dance cinema done so well without any kind of grit or grime or you know the it didn't it doesn't feel you know this is the anti uh, Dark Knight. Yeah, you know, there's no Christopher Nolan having to make you feel like there's some grim and grittiness. This is just we're popcorn. We know it, but you know what? This is great popcorn. Yeah, and and that scene you're describing is like the dance version of a meat cute. So I guess it's a beat street cute, and I I love that about it. And not only that, but they play Bobby Brown in that in that dance number. Oh my god, that made me so happy. I just I stood up and I was like, yep, yep, best best Bobby! movie ever. Love love Bobby! love this. If I had a complaint at all. It's with the Blu-ray because you have to remember that this movie was shown in theaters in 3D and what that translates to when you watch it at home is I really hope you have a big TV because they're a little bit further back from the camera than they usually are at all times. It's 
way more medium shots than it is close-ups, and it's because of the depth of field they tried to create but with I the think, 3D. I think that actually helps because you get to see the entirety of the dance sequence. It feels much more like actually attending maybe a, but, a theatrical show in that I mean, way. So I like that possibly, but like I, I am so in love. And with I do have everything. a big TV, so yeah. I'm, well, I'm yeah, I mean, my, I'm no slouch myself. <laughs> We're gonna compare screen sizes here, but no, I just I think that it kind of hurts it a little bit if you have a smaller TV because the presentation there's. It, you know, it just it, I want to see the steps. I want to see everybody like individually doing their thing, and it's a little bit obscured when they're that far away from the camera. But even still, this is an amazing addition to the franchise. Absolutely weaving in every pretty, again. If Charney Vincent and uh, Channing Tatum show up in the next one, it will be the Avengers. Charming it, Potato. It will be Charming Potato. It will be the Marvel Cinematic Universe of dance movies, and I absolutely. 100% love it. And as much as I love a TV show we're going to talk about a little bit later, I'm going to make this my pick of the week, too. Hey, we did it. Yeah, step up. We are all in for we that movie. Oh, dear. Oh. I was going so well, and then you calm yourself. Okay, I have to I have to take a breath. Okay, all right. Moving, moving on. Moving, moving on. on to Brett Ratner's Hercules. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I will say this, I didn't hate... Uh, I, I, you know, I was expecting, I really dislike Brett Ratner as a filmmaker, as a person, uh, you know, I just, I didn't see the necessity of this movie and we had just been subjected earlier this year to Rennie Harlan's Hercules with that, that muscle milk pile that somebody calls a human being. What's his name? Oh, uh, thing. Thing from the Twilight movies. I don't even remember. Uh, Yorgi? I don't remember. Um, so I really can't Yogi. remember that fucking guy's name. Um, but anyway, so this one stars The Rock as the, the classic Greek hero. And the thing that I liked about this movie is that they took a different tact with the character than any other Hercules movie has done in so much as they address the idea that maybe Hercules is not mythic at all. Maybe there's nothing supernatural about him and that he just has people around him who are really good at selling the legend so that he can be a more effective warrior, so he can inspire more fear in his enemies. And I actually thought that was an, an interesting angle to yeah. take. So, I mean, if nothing else had had that, The Rock is actually as charming as it usually is. Uh, I think the fight sequences are decent. And, I mean, yeah, it, it devolves into a lot of stupid stuff toward the end of the film. But I will say bravo for actually trying to do something more than just pointing the rock at people with a sword and going, kill. Yeah, this has actually got a, a kind of... Yeah, the whole narrative structure is really fascinating. That he turns up and he's kind of burned out. You know, the the legend that his family was destroyed... You know, he was kicked out of, of Athens because his uh, he was suspected of killing his family, but he doesn't remember this. So this is a man with some kind of weight. And that's one of the interesting things this does is that it allows The Rock to be big and brooding because the narrative is actually, and the emotional development is in many ways carried by the supporting cast, mm -hmm. um, who are solid. This is, this is a really good cast. And you yeah. kind of have this like shadow in the background who suddenly comes through and just goes, I'm going to kill you all. Um, <laughs> you know, he's like Schwarzenegger if Schwarzenegger actually had some legitimate acting chops. Right. Um, which is, you know, didn't hurt Arnold to not have any. That's true. Um, yeah, I mean, and, you know, it looks how you think it's going to look. There's logic gaps in all the places. There's going to be logic gaps. Um, but it kind of does an interesting job of saying, well, okay, if this is a legitimate, just a human being with a myth around him, mm -hmm. and the myth is very contemporary to him, well, where does the idea of, you know, armor that cannot be broken through or... Uh, a three-headed dog. Where does this actually all come from? And right. it tries to give you, 
And it, it, it actually does a pretty good job of playing one side against the other because you do go, well, there could be something weird and, and supernatural um, and godly about him, but then it could just be that even he's fallen for his own shtick. Yeah. And it, it balances on that edge really, really well. And, and it kind of resolves, but still with a little bit of ambiguity at the end. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, this, the cast is, is, Great. <laughs> you got Ian, you got obviously the Rock, Ian McShane, John Hurt, Rufus Sewell, and I'm sorry, the lead from Headhunters playing a uh, a, a Grecian warrior. Yeah. What are you getting? The little like the little tiny wispy guy from Headhunters, which yeah. is an amazing uh, Scandinavian crime film, is playing this character called Tidius, who's like a human animal. Yeah. Like he's yeah. like he's like a feral warrior, like monster, and he's amazing. Well, I particularly loved the the interaction of, of McShane and uh, Rufus Hewell, who mm. both just spend their entire time going, you know, you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. I can't die because I know when I, I, I have foreseen when I will die. You're a moron. We're all going to die at some point and pro- possibly just when I stab you. They are <laughs> such good fun together. Yeah, yeah. That it means that you can basically just, you know, Ratner for once has worked out what to do with his cast. <laughs> Rather than just going, you do what you do, run away and do it. Yeah. Um, so yes, this is kind of a weird evolution for Ratner, who I think has taken a lot of flack for for years because he's been given kind of Z grade projects, but mm-hmm. been told to make them into A grade material. And I think, in, you know, he doesn't have the chops for that. He has the chops to make good c-grade movies and this is what this is this is a fun c-grade movie with a little bit more brain than it it should be entitled to i wouldn't necessarily say it's a buy but you know i'd I'd put it in the rent pile it's kind of and definitely you know if it's a long slow saturday evening two years from now and it comes on fx which it inevitably will sure uh yeah i I definitely kind of it's kind of like the rundown you know it kind of reminds me of a you know another you know, smarter than it should be, better cast than it deserves or needs a uh, rock project. And it, and, it kind you know, of has that to it. But that, I think, really is a tribute, a lot of it, uh, to Peter Berg, the director of The oh, Rundown, yeah. who does a great job of that. I mean, you think about Brett Ratner's last few movies. We got Tower Heist. Uh, we got a segment in Movie 43. And Ugh. we got Rush Hour 3. Since 2007, he's only made three films. Yeah. Uh, he made Rush Hour 3. He made Tower Heist and now Hercules. And then he did a segment in Movie 43. Yeah. So it's clear that it's not just the two of us sitting here going, yeah, Brett Ratner, we're not really impressed with. I think Hollywood largely has been like, eh, not really sure what to do with you, Brett Ratner. Uh, but I will say again, I think this is better than I expected it to be. I think there are some strong story elements to it. I think the cast is is really solid. I think it does squander a little bit of that by the end, but I don't think... I think you're right. I think this is definitely uh, a rent. This is a solid rent. So, yeah, as as epic as that description was, <laughs> let's move on to uh, kind of the pièce de résistance of this episode, the Sopranos complete series box set on Blu-ray. Ooh. Now this is this is actually really uh, important because when they started releasing uh, for home video The Sopranos, Blu-ray wasn't a thing. No. So the first several we're seasons, we're so old. We're so old. The first several seasons were on DVD, and then it wasn't until I want to say season five, maybe even season six. That they started to get be released on HD DVD, and then when that went the way of the the dinosaur, the dodo, and Betamax, uh, they they released the very last season on Blu-ray. So the very last season was the only one you could get on Blu-ray. Huh. And now this set has taken all of the previous seasons. <laughs> I've got suddenly got this image of all these people with with who bought the HD DVD box sets go e- editions going. 
Well, I can sell that now. <laughs> yeah, good I'll luck use, with that. I'll use the money to go towards uh, towards my Blu-ray edition. <laughs> All eight dollars you'll get for it's gonna be it's gonna be stacked up next to next to their their, their Betamax collection. Yeah. Uh, oh, that was harsh. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. But I will say better. This is one of my absolute favorite TV shows of all time. It's you know it, it, when it first aired. I was 15 years old. That's, yeah, that's crazy to think about. Uh, when it first aired, I was 15, and I was just starting to, like, get into stronger television. Like, you know, not just watching, you know, the the kid stuff, Are You Afraid of the Dark, you know, whatever, cartoons. And Nick at Night, which had been my only real television outlet, uh, watching old sitcoms. Um, this was sort of the first show that kind of completely knocked me on my ass and made me go, wow, there's an artistry to this. There is an art form in television that I just had never experienced before. And so this was a very important show because it also hit right at the time I was starting to develop this obsession with mafia culture. Like I had seen The Godfather and Goodfellas. I went out and and rented or bought any movie that had anything to do with organized crime uh, from whatever country, Italian, organized crime, Russian, Irish. I didn't care. I watched it all. And I loved it. I started studying it. Like I bought all these books, started learning the history of all these, you know, crime families and where the five families came from. So this show really fed an obsession for me. And I remember you know, starting to get the DVD box sets and then rewatch everything and watch it religiously. And yeah, I, I was hooked. And then about the time that the sixth season was about to air, I, for whatever reason, I either didn't have HBO at the time or what, but I didn't see it. And then when it finally ended, I heard all this flack about, oh, the last episode's so disappointing, and it basically just ends mid-sittings and blah, 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 blah. But I didn't know the circumstances around it. And then it wasn't until... Last year, last winter, that I finally sat down and finished the sixth season, and I gotta say, I don't, I don't, maybe I'm just wired differently, but I kind of loved the ending of this show because it was the only way that David, like everyone said, well, that's David Chase putting up a middle finger to fans, and I'm like, I think it's the opposite. I think if he had, if he had given us either outcome. It, and, and I'm about to kind of spoil it. So if you haven't seen The Sopranos, don't listen to what I'm about to well, say. I think everybody knows by well, now. But here's, I mean, here's the thing. Yeah, spoiler, just just hoop through the if, next two minutes of the, of if, the recording. If Tony Soprano and his entire family had been murdered in that booth, what kind of ending would that really have been? How would that have satisfied anyone? And if it had just ended with them like just sitting there being a happy family and ended with kind of a fade out, that would have been an unsatisfying ending. So I feel like the only option he had was to basically put forth the idea that you know we've been we've been inside the consciousness of this human being this very you know anti-hero gangster this this really should be despicable person that that David Chase has has you know created a love has has engendered an affinity you know within the audience for this man and it's like we have reached the end of what we know about him we have reached the end of his sort of crisis of uh, his psychological crisis. We've reached the end of that. And that's really why we came on in the first place. The very first shot of the show is him sitting in a psychiatrist's office. Yeah. So when that, when that psychological crisis is over, when he's back with his family, when his enemies have been defeated and he is, he's basically sitting there with everything he's ever wanted, we've reached the end of our analysis of him, which is what he, what David Chase has been forcing us to do since the first episode is to take on the role of Lorraine Bracco's Jennifer Melfi. We are analyzing everything that happens in that show, even if we don't realize it. I, I think what's significant about this show is, and it, you know, it did have some 
you know, not doldrums, but it had some bits that were kind of like you're just going, yeah, we know that you've signed on to do six seasons, that you've been given six seasons to do this. You don't necessarily have all the material you necessarily need. There's a bit where it kind of, it, it wanders off in places, but it's got the space to do that because, you know, it's a six season show. We'll mm-hmm. forgive that. Since this show, everybody has been, if they have any aspirations uh, for doing something creative with television, they have been following in this show's footsteps. Absolutely. This in the same way that I, I think this is probably the the most important show on television since uh in drama terms, um Hill Street Blues. And I, I absolutely agree it, with that. Yeah, and I think the only other program which came as close to kind of having the impact of, you know, this is how you know everybody looked at and went, huh. This changes what we do. This changes mm-hmm. how we approach things with probably friends on the comedy side because the, you know, that changed how you approach the sitcom it completely re- and totally. It redefined the formula. Yeah, and this it, does it, it the same. It bucked the formula so much that it redefined it. This do, this does the same thing. Yeah. And I think that's really its importance. I mean, I mean, you know, there are shows I, I like more. Sure. Just, just at gut level. I mean, I'm still, I will always be one of the people, those people who goes out and uh, really will, will, convince people they need to go and watch Oz because I think it's it's a true masterwork in the same way. It wasn't as impactful. Mm. There was a much more kind of marginal show for a smaller audience. It's you know, it, you know this is a dark show, but it, Oz is incredibly dark. Oz is like, you know, pretty much the first thing that happens to one of the characters is he gets raped and becomes the uh, uh the slave of a Nazi prison <laughs> Nazi uh, prisoner. Um this this is huge and epic this is one of the great pieces of american fiction yeah uh and i you know i think it it you know it opened up the possibility for people doing things like you know you don't have game of thrones without this you don't have breaking bad without oh, this oh you damn sure as sure. hell do not have breaking yeah. bad without this yeah this you is... don't have walking dead you don't have yeah. the the upcoming happen Leonard adaptation you don't have you don't have the shield you don't have the shield which basically took this concept and went okay but what if he was a cop instead yeah. you don't have hell on wheels so there are so many things you don't have have yeah because this is the first one that just that really goes no we're not going to think about how we get at the end of the first season we are thinking six years ahead we are nowhere we're aiming for and we hope the audience will be on board when we get to that point it changed how showrunners wrote things yes so uh i mean for example low winter sun yeah which got cancelled but they i was talking to uh, the lead actors here and they were saying yeah they're working on stuff we're getting little throwaway moments in episode two that we're not it's not not explained to us what we're doing and we get a payoff in episode 16 Mm -hmm. that they suddenly go oh no this is what that little moment was yeah and you go oh and that's gonna obviously gonna pay off next season they never got a second season but that's how you start thinking about it Mm -hmm. this changes how television is made and that's why it's so important yeah, and and as far as these, I want to I want to say this too about the impact of the show is that the whole idea of the the antihero as a central figure as the as the hero of a TV series, this show took moral relativism to the point of a moral vacuum. Like it made us fall in love with this with this murderer with this sociopath to a level that even HBO. This is a great story. HBO. Uh, there's a great episode, like I think it's like the third or fourth episode in the first season. It's called College, and it's when Tony's taking Meadow around to all these colleges, and it's just like purely like sweet family moment. And then while he's on that trip, he finds an, a former informant and murders him, and then goes right back to his daughter. And HBO was like, "You can't do that. You just made people like him. Now they're gonna hate him." It was such an aberration at the time. The idea of a complete 
anti-hero. The, the idea of a despicable person being the lead of a show that HBO was afraid that the first time we saw him like murder somebody with his bare hands, that the show was going to can't get canceled. No one would watch it anymore because audiences are not going to get behind him. And not only did they get behind him, but they got behind him in a way that redefined television from that point on. And now we have so many shows, so many shows about people who don't conform to uh, you know, absolute sense of right and wrong, who have their own set of morals, who have their own sense of honor and, and right and wrong, and will subscribe to whatever that is as long as that character is compelling. And I, I think there are a few characters uh, in the American television canon as fascinating, as compelling as Tony Soprano. Yeah. And a lot of that is is attributed to David Chase. A lot of that is also uh, attributed to uh, the late James Gandolfini. And yeah. the, the more I rewatch these episodes and these special features, I felt a loss. Like I was like, man, we don't have him anymore. Yeah. Not like I understand the show is done, but just like as an actor, as a performance, as a force of theatrical nature, like we don't have this guy anymore and it hurts. It's like, man, I would love to have seen what else he would have done. And I think this is such a great tribute. This box set, um, they've gone back and they've completely, the two things that are really remarkable about the Sopranos in terms of presentation are the cinematography, which is gorgeous almost all the way through the entire show, just really bold choices made with camera work and lighting. And that is allowed to shine in high definition. Uh, even though it's it's converted after the fact, it still looks beautiful in, in high definition. And then the music. The music, which is such a central part of the show. It's, it's so intricately chosen and subliminally uh, applied, and it's it's remarkable. And it sounds great because you have a you have a great uh, cleaned up soundtrack as well. So I highly recommend it on those levels. It, it ports over all of the special features that came on the DVDs, and then it adds a few uh, special features that are specifically high def and specific to this set. Uh, one of which is an amazing documentary, uh, and it's called uh, let me let me find it here. It's a documentary kind of about the impact of the show, uh, and it's called. Uh, <laughs> Sing along, kids, yes. if you know this at home. Defining a television landmark. It's a 45-minute documentary all about how The Sopranos really did kind of... And it talks to actors. It talks to critics. It has some great archival interviews with James Gandolfini and Nancy Marchand, who played his mother. Um, you know, and they, they weave all this together to kind of create and, and make people understand how important this show really was. And then there's another HD feature that I wasn't really wild about called Supper with The Sopranos, uh, which was David Chase... Terrence Winter, who went on to create Boardwalk Empire, of course. Uh, Alan Coulter. And then the actors that... The, the problem I have with this is that the actors they chose weren't my favorite from the series. Like mm-hmm. Robert Eiler, who plays AJ Jr. Or pl- plays AJ. Uh, Ada Tutoro, who is a great actress, but Janice was never really my favorite character. And then Dominic Chianese, who's a great actor, but Uncle June... You know, it's just like... I. I you know, it was like, I kind of wish that they had, there had been other people there. But all in all... You mean all, there were people who, who had spare time? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's what it felt like. It was like, who could we get on short notice? So, I mean, in terms of the supplements, everything from the original DVDs is ported over. Um, the Defining a Television Landmark is actually a really, really solid documentary. But beyond that, it's just, it's nice to have this entire set in one place, in high definition. And I, I know that there are a lot of places right now where you can stream this. But if you don't have access to that at the moment... I would I would highly recommend picking this setup. I think it looks great on a shelf, and it's a great like memento of this this landmark piece of television history. Plus, you know, things don't remain streaming forever, folks. That's true. I had a discussion recently where people say, "Oh no, nobody buys discs anymore. Everything uh, everything is streaming." And I went, "Hey, 
do you like The Simpsons? It's like, it ain't on Netflix anymore, so yeah. just deal with it. Exactly. You know, streaming services are, are nice and fine and dandy, but they are, mm. but you cannot rely on them. So that's an important thing to remember when you're thinking about buying DVDs. And I think because of the lack of brand new, spe- the, or the, the shortage of brand new special features on this massive set, and the fact that a lot of the episodes are streaming right now, that's the only reason it's not my pick of the week. Yeah. Well, that and Step Up All In. <laughs> so, you know. Well, that was The Sopranos box set. One of my favorite shows. I will revisit those episodes until the day my TV stops working or I croak from massive cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, so we're going to move column A, live column B. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, we're going to move on to The One I Love, which is a uh, romantic science fiction film. Yeah. I guess would be how you'd qualify it. Uh, starring Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss, who most of you probably know as Peggy from Mad Men. I will say this. Movies starring Mark Duplass are about as hit and miss for me as movies directed by Mark Duplass. (laughs) Um, So I wasn't really sure whether this was going to be my cup of tea. That being said, I knew absolutely nothing about it going in. And I kind of think that's preferable. So if you haven't seen it yet and you believe that you might have a better time going into it completely blind, don't listen to anything I'm going to say. Um, This is about a couple who are... On the verge of splitting up, he Mark Duplass has cheated on Elizabeth Moss at some point in their past. They've worked through it, but things are really strained. They started off, uh, you know, as this very sort of hipstery, meet cute. Like they met at a party, and then they broke into somebody's pool, and they went swimming, and it was hilarious. And he called the cops, and no, he called they, they, they missed. I mean, it, it basically, you know, white folks who had a like a little bit of danger in their lives, but yes. you know, their life, their life has generally been quite safe. And then he kind right. of violates that exactly. by sleeping with somebody else. And then they go to this, they're, they're advised by their therapist, played by Ted Danson. Hey, everybody, a Ted Danson sighting. Yep. Uh, it, it tells them to go to this cabin. He's like, I think what you need to do is get away. I have this retreat. You go to this cabin. Oh, it's it's not a cabin. It is a lovely house You're up right. in the hills. It's, it's more it's of a, a chalet. Door. It's a, it's a full-blown fucking mansion with a guest house. <laughs> it's delightful. I mean, this is the thing. Like, they're, they're definitely, they're, they're, they're so, you know, rich LA, rich, mid-class LA rich. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the you know their definition of roughing it in the countryside comes with you know two spas. Uh, <laughs> like, this house is absolutely adorable, and they're totally relaxed because this is what they do, and they're having a nice, comfortable time. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, they kind of you know reignite their passion, and he met you know. He he gets bacon for breakfast, and she never makes him bacon for breakfast. Yeah. And this is your the bacon is your first clue that not all is as it seems. Yeah, there is a science fiction. There is well, it, this is one of the things I really love about this film mm-hmm. that it doesn't tell you what the thing that is happening is. It doesn't need to. Yeah. A thing is happening. It could be science fiction. It could be supernatural at some mm-hmm. level. It doesn't need to explain the MacGuffin. Because what it's about is if an odd thing happens to you that makes you question some of the choices in your relationship, that gives you options, that gives you maybe even an out to something closer to the relationship you thought you were going to have, mm-hmm. do you take it? Right. This is about two people who are suddenly given an option that basically is a reboot on their entire lives or that's what they think it, it's about the the idea of being in love with the ideal version of someone yeah 
and whether or not you can handle when that idealistic version fades away and you're left with the more bare bones, flawed version of that same relationship. And it's expressed in a very literal way in this film, but I think it's a way that really works. And it's also touching upon the idea of how we can sabotage ourselves in relationships. And again, very literally expressed in this movie with the science fiction concept, but it also has an ending that reminds me so much of like seventies science fiction. You know what I mean? Like those really kind of bleak moments of, <laughs> Again, I don't want to go too much into detail, but one of those moments where it's just like all is not what it seems yeah. and maybe, you know, things aren't as happy as as they appear. And then the choice, there's a choice that's made in an instant at the end of this movie that really made me happy because there's that turn and then you think it's going to be a big deal and then there's a moment of thought and then there's a okay. Yeah. There's a okay, I'll accept this. Yeah. And uh yeah, I I think the performances are absolutely outstanding. Yeah. Uh, I think primarily the performances of Mark Duplass, Mark Duplass, Elizabeth Moss, and Elizabeth Moss are all fantastic. Yes. Uh, <laughs> very, yeah. I, and there are little... This is really one of those moments where you can look at somebody and go, you can do really impressive things with tiny little nuances that yes. define a character. I think uh, Elizabeth Moss, uh, she has a slightly more restrained part in this so she really has little moments where it's like a it's literally just like a flick of the eyes mm. um whereas duplass gets to play it a little bit broader because he's a guy he's a guy who's kind of in constant meltdown anyway yeah. and he does some fabulous stuff in this again you know like you duplass me is very hit or miss um you're also this, dubious of duplass yeah i <laughs> you you um i i think this is uh really Super impressive work by both of them. Um, this is actually the debut feature by Charlie McDowell, who is uh, Malcolm McDowell's son. Really? Yeah. I did not know there yeah. was a family and, connection. Uh, there. In fact, um, oh, who is it? Who turns and plays the? Who plays the shrink at the beginning? Ted Danson. Ted Danson yeah. is actually his uh, stepfather. Really? Because he is, as far as I remember, he is um, Char- uh, Malcolm McDowell's uh, son. By Mary Steenburgen, and Steenburgen um, married Ted Danson, and then they all had an orgy with Kevin no. Bacon. No, because no, be, okay. no, that'd be really awkward. Uh, <laughs> yes, he is the son of Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen, so he is the stepson of Ted Danson. Yeah, uh, there and you go. He, it, you know, he pulls something really very sly, very low key. It, and I think this, just, like, I've said this before, but I think this is this really great wave of relationship stories with with a sci-fi element at the moment mm-hmm. that really are fascinating and you can it proves that you can do something really really impressive with some they're not special effects they're they're how you shoot the film now mm-hmm. that you can do there's a couple of green screen moments that are absolutely phenomenal and work so well but you will never know they're there Right, until you exactly. there's actually this one featurette that actually goes okay and here's where the green screen was and you go there was green screen there holy shit balls yeah. this is really really impressive yeah it's um, very well done yeah very and this well is done. a you know the, i really like this an awful lot i'm you know i and it makes me really eager to see what charlie mcdowell is going to is going to do again i think this is a very impressive feature debut by a director and funny enough the last movie i can think of that was sort of using science fiction to tell an interesting love story also had mark duplass in it and it was uh Safety not guaranteed. Yeah. So yeah, no, this is this is a really interesting sort of it's you know what? I'll tell you what movie this actually reminded me of the most in terms of romantic science fiction was uh was it Time After Time? Is is it the name of the Christopher yeah. Ray 
Um, yeah, it's written by Richard Matheson for fuck's sake, but it's uh, no, not the, time after time has Malcolm McDowell and is about Jack the Ripper. Yeah, uh, what's the one I'm thinking of with Christopher Reeve and uh, oh my oh, god, oh yeah. Anyway, that one. <laughs> this is good radio, good job, Brian. Yeah, <laughs> we, totally we, forget we the name. Quality hackness. <laughs> and this yeah. Is, yeah, this is very. You know, there's nothing. You know, again, this is it's somewhere in time. Somewhere Sorry, in time. Somewhere this, in is, time. this is very cerebral and emotional in a really, really smart way. Uh, unlike uh, premature. Yeah, let's move on to premature. Let's move on to premature because I didn't get a chance to see this one. You didn't. Uh, no, I, this is one that I actually just ran out of time uh, and didn't get to. So tell us about premature. Honestly, I think you should. Really? I think you should. This is and this is kind of a teen version of this of this genre of uh, relationship sci-fi movies. Okay. Um, it's basically, and I, I've said this before, it's Groundhog Day meets Porky's. It works. Okay. It actually works. What is the deal with with the Groundhog Day concept coming back? Like we had Edge of Tomorrow that puts it in an action format, and now we got to because it's such a good thing. It, it's it's a good trope to play with, and it works mm. in pretty much any environment. Fair enough. The basic idea here is high school senior trying to get you know he's got a big day ahead. Uh, he's supposed to go hang out with his his best friend who's a let girl. me let me let me just take a wild guess. Is he trying to lose his virginity? This is actually wait 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 wait. wait. <laughs> he's actually trying not to because oh, he's got wow. too much on in his life. He's supposed to spend the evening with his friend. They every year they get together and they watch the spelling bee. He's supposed to be having the interview to get into Georgetown because his father got in was in Georgetown and he's under a lot of pressure and he's just basically just trying to get through the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gets distracted by this girl that he gives um, home that he gives uh, tutoring to, who drags him back to her room. Uh, things get hot and sweaty, and he comes extremely prematurely. Bum, bum, and then bum. wakes up in bed the morning before, huh? Covered in a thick layer of his own jizz pants. Oh boy! <laughs> With his mother opening the door and just going, just throw the sheets in the wash. And this keeps happening. And Wait, is he like? Does it every time it happens? Is there more of it? Like, is he trying to cocoon himself? No. Like, what? What <laughs> is happening? Time, here? Every time it cuts back to the same moment um of him lying in bed and it and it's it's and i was like i, I saw the trailer so this and went there's no way i'm gonna like this this is gonna be this is gonna be dumb as all hell this is gonna be like project x level stupid i'm just really not gonna enjoy this instead this is a film which has gone hey all those 80s movies that you knew and liked uh let's take the best parts of those which is not just references and homages to it. Although there is a fantastic quarter-hour sequence that is clearly a nod to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which actually starts with a tiny little musical sting that basically goes, bomp, bomp, and you're like, oh, I know where you're going with this. But it actually, it gets away with all this stuff. Huh. It's and, and, you know, it is a sex comedy in the same way, in the classic mould. Uh, incredibly light on nudity. The only nudity is at one point uh, the uh, central character is running along trying to avoid bullies and realises the only way to get away from them is to run into a small room and pleasure himself until the day resets. <laughs> you know, this is not afraid of the broad humour, but it's surprisingly charming. This is one though, another IFC release that is playing around, you know, because they had... Um, Oh, plus one, which is another kind of, you know, parallel timelines, odd things happening with continuity thing. This is, that was much more dramatic, 
with a kind of big capital D drama. This is comedic mm. and gets away with everything it tries for. Uh, I was really surprised how much I liked this um, because normally, you know, teen comedies these days, I'm like, oh, I hate you all. This actually does everything you want right. And it's rude and it's crude, but it's still got that kind of sweet edge to it that I think really, really works. Fair enough. There we go. Well, I will have to check. I guess I was prematurely judging this movie. Uh, I'll have to go back and check it out. If, hey, hey, ho. If only for the Ferri- the 20 minute Ferris Bueller reference. Uh, and Alan Tudyk as a uh, guidance counselor, having the, not a guidance counselor, as a, a recruiting uh, guy for a uh, college, having the best on screen meltdown that you have seen in years. <laughs> he is such, Alan Tudyk should just be given a part in everything at this point. Uh, you know, post Tucker and Dale versus evil. Yes. I'm just like, Alan Tudyk should just turn up for 10 minutes and go, hi, I've got this for a few minutes. See you later. I said the same about Tyler Labine and then I saw that Hulu show that he's in. Oh. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, moving on from there, we're going to talk about A Most Wanted Man, which is, is it the last or one of the last? I think it's the last. The last Philip Seymour Hoffman film. Uh, I guess it was finished before, well, obviously it was finished before he passed. Uh, it's being released on Blu-ray now. And this is from the director of The American, who prior to making The American, his entire career was about music. Yeah. Uh, he did music videos. He also did the movie Control, which is about the lead singer of Joy Division. Um, so his entire career is kind of centered around music. And well, he- Anton, Anton Corbin actually started off as a photographer. Oh, okay. And the thing was that his uh, kind of the the classic photographs of uh, Joy Division, the ones that really established the look of them and the feel of them as a band, uh, those are Anton Corbin, and he really came through as you know he started off doing that. Then he moved into videos with them. Then he moved you know. People kept giving me more video work. Then he became a a, a filmmaker. Um, this is Anton Corbin doing a spy movie. Yeah, a, I mean, much much in the same dry spy movie. That's that's the thing is it's you know like the American, which I've I've not seen, but the chief complaint I kept hearing from people about the American is a little too dry, it was a little too dull, it was you know it was kind of dragged on, and that was kind of my issue with this movie is that it's a spy movie. But it's dealing more with things like interdepartmental conflict on the part of the agencies that are trying to track down terrorists and, you know, the financial intricacies of moving money to terror. Like, it focuses on, like, the things, the the minutia of anti-terrorism espionage that just, unless your writer is uh, Aaron Sorkin, like, I just don't see how you can draw uh, you know draw out a lot of of interesting facets about it. and that's kind of where i ended up with this movie is i ended up at the end going well yeah, okay i guess that was a spy movie in the most technical of sense i i'm actually going to disagree with you completely here uh i think i grew up watching uh the great early john le carrier adaptations uh things like uh, the um uh bbc's adaptation of tinker tailor soldier spy it really feels like that. This is that I will agree. This with. is smart, <laughs> uh, smart people trying to outwit each other constantly. People who do nothing but play the big long game. Mm-hmm. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the head of an agency uh, within the German government that is uh, cannot exist legally cannot exist because of the restrictions on uh, counter-terrorist activities and intelligence activities within the German, the, the contemporary German constitution. But you know they've got these kind of agencies. He right. is a smart old guy who has been doing this for years, 
and now and probably grew up doing exactly this kind of thing against the Russians and the East Germans or potentially it's never really defined he could have been doing this for the East Germans that's very <laughs> you know you, you kind of have this you know he's old enough but there's this ambiguity about exactly who this guy is or what he's you know he does what he does and he does it extraordinarily well now he's trying to stop um, Islamic radical terrorists from uh, undertaking a strike on German uh, on German territory, mm-hmm. uh, or from making allowing them to set up the infrastructure. And this is about you know a large part of this is about money transfers. And right. what I really liked about it is one, it actually it shows the interrelationship within Europe of you know the Russia has really trodden hard on. Um, any kind of Muslim sentiments. Um, so you have this guy, this guy who turns up in Germany, he smuggled himself in, and you've got this question of whether he really is a, potentially a Muslim terrorist, whether he is being used for, you know, against his will by Muslim terrorist groups, or whether he's an innocent guy who got away from the Russians who thought he was a terrorist and decided to torture him. Right. And you've got this, you know, you, you have this ambiguity about him. Philip Seymour Hoffman is this guy who's like, I'm just going to get the job done. He's dealing with the CIA. He's dealing with his own government. He's having to outwit them to convince them to give him more time to do what he wants. It's incredibly low key. This is a this is a tradecraft movie, mm-hmm. and I, I loved that. Yes, it's slow and dry, and it's all in minutiae. But I absolutely adored that. I, I found this fascinating in the most visceral way. That I'm just watching it and just going, I really want to know. You know, who's going to make what, which little tiny tweak? And there was a, a, an amazing scene that I absolutely loved. It's, it's the, really the payoff scene where you, you see a room full of spies what, watching remotely what is happening in a different room. They have no ability to shape what's going on there. They're waiting for one tiny thing to be said. And they're not going to suddenly strike. They're not going to come in with a SWAT team. They're going to go, we've got what we need. And then they're going to start pushing the levers and making everything change. There's no big action sequences here. These are people who are working with words and power and influence. No. I absolutely adored that. This is this you know this was close run um, with Step Up All In for my pick of the week wow. because I really I really found this just just intellectually challenging in that kind of I think in that way that I don't think. Even like the modern, the most recent adaptation of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy still felt the urge to occasionally go, oh, we've got to have something action-y. This never has that. See, this is my- about, you have to watch who is stood in the background behind somebody during one sequence because you go, oh, hang on, that's what's happening here. I'm looking in the wrong place. This is where the information's being gathered. Yeah. And you have to get used to like, and it's part of what it does really cleverly is that the, there is a large number of the unit, of the, the anti-terrorist unit who actually you know, they are the most innocuous looking people because that's who you need because they fade into the background and you go, uh, yo, who's that person? Oh, that's him. Oh, wow. This scene has just played out in a completely different way to what I thought. I think this will actually withstand rewatching and I think people will get more from it on watching a second time. Yeah. It's, it's not, you know, this isn't a sling it on and watch it and, uh, and just, yeah, oh, it's on in the background. This is a, you can, you do need to give some time and energy and patience to it, but I really feel it pays off. And the, and the denouement, I think, is, in some ways, is as daring as the final shot of, of The Sopranos. There's a moment where you're just like, oh, something's happening, and you're like, fuck, no, I was looking again, again. This is about wheels within wheels within wheels, and I, I really adored that. Yeah, I guess my problem wasn't with a lack of action sequences. My problem was with a lack of tension. I didn't feel any tension, because the 
the thing you described about the the character that smuggles himself in, he absolutely has the most potential to create tension because the whole t- the whole movie you're guessing and then second guessing and then third guessing uh, about who he is and what his intentions are. But they spend so much of the movie with him, like, relegated to that room or off in that room somewhere else. And they don't even spend enough time with him. They don't give him enough screen time, in my opinion, to effectively draw out the tension of that character. Like, that, if that was the whole movie, if it was us constantly being with this coiled snake, we don't know if it's going to strike, we don't even know if it's venomous, that would have been really tense and interesting to me. But instead, they focus so much on, you know, the the trade craft and the funds transfers and all the stuff that I'm sorry, I just don't find interesting about espionage. I think think that that is the thing about espionage I really like. Mm. I like those components. I like the... I like the sense that there are pawns, and it's it's and everybody's a pawn. It's a question if you can, for that one brief moment, mm-hmm. make yourself into a bishop. That's what's fascinating about it. If there's moments where you can you actually are capable of rising above and seeing everything from five thousand feet just for a microsecond, and I that's what I really like. I think it, it says something interesting about people who are truly committed. You know what? You know the intelligence community is in a lot of ways really like particularly in countries like germany where they can't do things do the things they want to Mm -hmm. but they have to but there's still this kind of restraint there's no dragging somebody into a room and breaking their knees this is still we're going to talk to you until until you break until you understand that what it is that you that we want from you and you have to do it um again and and yet again um another great supporting performance from willem defoe yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, who is great in this as a German banker mm-hmm. who is caught up in all these in all these issues, and you know, we along with John Wick, one of those two performances I did not see coming, and, you, and isn't like a big thing in the publicity about it. Mm-hmm. But you go, holy crap balls! Is Willem Dafoe being excellent? Again? Yeah, I think I think the difference between you and me is that when it comes to spy movies, you're looking for a chess match. And I want people to play Jenga. Yeah, like I want I want these slow crafted moves, but always with the uh, the possibility of everything to come toppling down and to feel that element of danger all the time. Whereas, you know, this movie, like you were describing, is much more, you know, people thinking several moves ahead and you know, foregone conclusions. And and maybe that is more realistic to the trade craft of, of anti-terrorism and espionage, but it's not my kind of movie. Yeah. So I think that's... I think that's I think, I think, I think this is a film about what your warrior expectations are for what you want out of it. I think, I think we should just boil it down to, you know, as... Uh, to your wrong. As reductive as possible. Either you're a chess person or you're a Jenga person. <laughs> Because people are going to go, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, I will um, I will admit that that's probably not in. the first time. Step up all in. Step up all in. <laughs> Moving on from there, we're going to talk that's about... That's going to become a thing now, isn't it? Yeah, step up all in. I, 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 find I, am cl- I am fairly clear that once we once this goes live, just the entirety of the comments is going to be, you don't like this lady smell, but you like step up all in. Yep. I hate you. Just like, oh, yeah, whatever. And what Tennessee Hill people do you think listen to our shows? That was a crazy impression of a human being. <laughs> that wasn't even a crazy impression of a, of an American. That was just a, like, ir- inaccurate portrayal of a human being. Derp-a-derp. Anyway, we're going to move on to... I was raised by a cup of coffee. <laughs> is that a Homestar Runner reference? It is indeed. Thank well you very done. much. Well done. Uh, we're going to move on to a film that kind of came out of nowhere and surprised the hell out of me. The Ninth Configuration. Oh, 
written and directed by William Peter Blatty, uh, who also wrote The Exorcist. Yes. So, you know, this is not the first movie that I've seen of his that he's directed. He also directed The Exorcist 3, which I contend has some of the creepiest moments in the franchise. Um, but I had never heard of this film. And I start looking at the cast. I'm like, wait a minute, Stacy Keach. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Uh, Stacy Keach, Neville Brand, uh, Tom Atkins, um, fucking um, Robert Loja. Like, you just go down the list of this cast, and it's like, okay. And it takes place in a castle that's supposed to be in the Pacific Northwest during Vietnam, where a bunch of soldiers who have now gone psychotic are being held and tested to see if they're faking. And I'm like, okay. And then it starts with the same song, San Antonio, It's Really Good to See You, that opens Rolling Thunder. And I'm like, okay, what the hell is this movie? And then it proceeds to be one of the funniest, weirdest, off-the-wall Vietnam films I have ever seen. It, it, you know what it felt like with the castle, which is kind of a whimsical setting, a fairy tale setting, and all these bizarre characters and the humor and kind of the, the darkness and then the playfulness of narrative. I was like, this feels like a Terry Gilliam movie. This feels like if Terry Gilliam made a movie about Vietnam vets, it would be this. Yeah, I, this is, for me, this is more, uh, Blatty tries to do Samuel Beckett. Uh, okay. I could see that yeah, too. Yeah. This is, this is one of the strangest films you will, you will see. Not just this year. It's just one of the in strange, your life. Like this, it is the part of the reason this film disappeared was that no one knew what it was. No one knew what to make of it. Everybody was confused as hell, including at several points the cast. It's pretty clear. Um, Blatty has said in the past that you know if The Exorcist is about the nature of of true evil, um, then this is about the nature of of good and and self sacrifice in a world filled with evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is basically the last twenty seconds of The Exorcist, writ, writ large over two hours. Uh, and Stacey, set in a castle, Stacy for, for no good reason. No. Uh, apart from the fact that he couldn't shoot, afford to shoot in the Pacific Northwest, so he went to Hungary instead. And there's there's okay talk about the craziness of this film. The story of how it got made is almost as crazy as its plot. Yeah. Apparently, Pepsi put up part of the money to make this film because they shot it in Hungary, and they just had money that they couldn't get out of Hungary. So they're like, well, we could let it sit, or we could co-produce this film. Yeah. Let's co-produce this film. It's like, really? Just because you didn't want your money to sit, you put it into a movie you knew nothing about. So Pepsi is one of the fucking producers on this film. This whole thing is just a, 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 a two hours of, of just crazy um there, there is a guiding mind behind it you can really feel that there's an intellect like working this isn't just like carnage but it is you completely berserk stacy keach uh, catatonic for much of its duration as the shrink who is sent to this place where everybody is just allowed to do the the whole idea is you let people act through all their craziness and they'll hopefully come out the other side so there is one character who is trying to reenact macbeth uh with dogs um, and they just randomly, tur- he'll just randomly turn up with a dog. Um, there's another one, this, uh, an African American guy who decides that he's Superman. Yep. Um, yep. And, and none of this necessarily has a payoff. This stuff's just happening, which is why it feels like Beckett. It's that sense yeah. of, of just craziness and carnage. The, the, the through plot is basically an astronaut who decides that, you know, he's not going to go to the moon. And there's lots of, of sequences with him and Stacy Keach discussing why he didn't go, which then become metaphysical discussions about man's place in the cosmos. Um, 
And then there's an amazing bar fight. There's there, a great- <laughs> it is like Roadhouse on speed. Like, it, it's phenomenal to watch. And it's it takes you aback because it comes after a very long sequence of Stacey Keach putting up with a lot of nonsense from this biker gang. Uh, one of whom is the bad guy from uh, uh, Bad Dreams, Lynch. <laughs> I forget what his first name is. Uh, it's the same as the character's first name, but I can't remember what it is. But yeah, there's just it's it, it's a lot of weirdness. It's a lot of kind of explorations of the idea of madness and what brings it about, and whether people are kind of predestined to be evil and insane. And it, it's just like it spends a lot of time philosophizing, and then at the same time, there's a lot of humor in that madness. There's a lot of humor in these characters. Like again, um, Jason Miller's character trying to readapt Shakespeare for dogs. Like that is one of my favorite things in the movie because it makes absolutely no sense, but he plays it so straight. He he absolutely commits to it and he's very particular about what dogs get what roles and Joe Spinell, who wasn't in the original script or the novel, his character was just like, hey, I really want to be in this movie. So they make him uh, Jason Miller's kind of sidekick for that 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 task of trying to uh, cast dogs in Shakespearean plays and and yet everyone is so funny the the dialogue is really witty the 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 repartee between the inmates between the inmates and Stacy Kichu's kind of come to uh to, to see if he can heal them and then the twist that, that takes there's so many great movie references like it is a really strange film that I feel like has been completely buried in the annals of cinema. I think it's been buried because, again, literally nobody understood what to do with this film at the time. Like, this is a, a uh, Vietnam psycho comedy set in a gothic castle yeah. that makes that doesn't really have a conventional payoff. Uh, pretty much nothing about it is conventional. It There's a lot of guys shouting at each other. Yeah, you know, I I could see you handing this over to the studio and going, huh? And everybody going, what? If I will say what? this, I mean, why do you? How do you even? How do you put market this in it? it? Yeah. yeah, like there is no, there is no way you can explain this to the average audience. Member. You would have to, you would have to har- hardcore hit on the from the writer of The Exorcist and look at this cast and what's it about? Don't worry about it, just go see it. And you know what? If at the end of this film the castle had just sprouted rockets and taken off into space, wouldn't have fell out of place. At wouldn't that have, point. wouldn't have fell that. Or, or turned out who made of Funyuns. Yeah, like, it's like, eh, this. This is a film which just goes. Uh, we know where we're going. Yeah, it's it's dream logic. If you tore apart the wall of sleep and your dream was just your reality from yeah. that point forward, that's that's kind of the narrative of this movie. And I think I actually really liked it. It really worked for me. And like the characters are just so even in their most bizarre moments, are still really fascinating. And like I said, the dialogue really held me. It had me laughing a lot. I really like this weird gothic setting that's supposed to be in the Pacific Northwest, but is clearly not at all in the <laughs> United States. Um, yeah, so no, I, the cast is is tremendous. I really, really liked it, even as odd and, and completely backwards as it is. Yeah. It really worked for me, and I'm glad this company, Hens Tooth Video, no idea who they are. <laughs> Seemingly the only people who take the risk on this. I think they're hand-carving yeah. each individual disc <laughs> before the end of that. Like, somebody may buy it. Somebody may buy it. Uh, and it's a nice edition as well. I mean, the, yeah. transfer, the transfer is pretty good, but then again, I suspect that the negative hasn't been used much. Yeah, that's uh, probably um, true. Uh, there's a couple of very nice, nice extras, including, and this is the funniest thing, considering how completely baroque this film is. Um, some outtakes that Blatty decided were too weird for inclusion. <laughs> Which, when you or, see the final film, you're like, really? That was too weird for your or, movie? Or one that he took out because he said, oh, I thought it was too much of a downer. It's like, are you kidding me? Have you watched your own film? <laughs> really? 
Like it, like this is he makes a lot of decisions that you go. I have no idea how this guy's head works. Absolutely, but highly recommend it. Um, this is a I just, just watch it. I don't even know what else to say. Just watch it. Make your own mind up on that. It's it's just something you need to see. Yep. And moving on from there, because we are in November, which means Christmas is inevitably coming. Jingle bells, jingle bells. Yes, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is getting a 50th anniversary Blu-ray release. 50 years old. That is bizarre to me. Oh, you've seen it. You, uh, do, you probably know whether you're going to buy it or not. Just from point. what I just said. Yeah, but this is the Rankin Bass Classic. Yeah. Which The only thing that's going to annoy you this Christmas is probably because they put the 50th anniversary edition out. It may not be on television this year, so if you want to see it, you're probably stuck with this. And Granny's yeah. going to say, where's that nice Rudolph? And it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, Grandma's uh, gotten into the cooking sherry again. Hey, we know. Um, but she was she was the crazy Tennessee hillbilly calling earlier. <laughs> oh, that's who that was. I yes. thought it was kind of familiar. Drink granny. So this is the 50th anniversary edition. Now, two years ago, they came out with a Blu-ray set that had like Frosty the Snowman and and Rudolph and a couple of other kind of Christmas classics. Rankin and Bass. Uh, I'm I'm in love with Rankin and Bra- Rankin and Bass. I love everything they've ever done. Like whether whether it was. Strong story, you know, great voice acting. I don't even give a shit. Just the animation and the, I think they called it marionation, I believe yeah. was the, the name of the, the process they came up with where they use like molded plastic and clay to create, uh, it, it had almost more of a marionette look than a, than a stop motion or claymation look. Um, but anyway, I, I, I grew, obviously I grew up like most of you listening with their movies and I am just completely enamored of their style and of the, the creative process that they that they bring to it, and I really like. I think Rudolph is probably my favorite of those. Santa Claus is coming to town is also really excellent, uh, but I I really like this is my favorite. Now I will say this Blu-ray, the transfer looks great. It really does. You can see every fiber on the uh, on the faux fur that they use for the reindeer, and it's really exceptional, and it it just looks beautiful. I guess if I had a complaint, it's that the special features on this are clearly aimed for very small kids. And I understand that I am a little bit arrested developmentally, but, you know, call me crazy. The 50th anniversary of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is not something that should be sold just to children. And I feel like this edition is because the special features are things like, oh, we're going to sing along with all the songs and here's a pop-up book version of the same movie. And it's just like, okay, it does, you can't interact with it. It's just like, look, this is what it would look like if it was a pop-up book. And I'm like, so you're basically going, look, shiny things. And you know Disney's actually just put out an edition of Frozen that is the sing-along version. It's the same film. It's just the every bit of it is a sing-along. You or you could just learn the words and sing along with it. But yeah, uh, and put the subtitles on. Yeah, but yeah. like, and and then there's this really bizarre special feature where a DreamWorks animator is like, "Hey kids, I'm going to teach you how to draw characters from this movie," and it's like. Okay, this feels already like way too kitty, but let's do this. And he's like, "Now I'm using a uh, uh, an ink pad application on my iMac, but you could totally do this with pencil and paper." And it's like, "Okay," but then he's like, first you you're gonna draw an oval, and then grab the corners of the edge, and with your cropping tool, squish it." I'm like, "Well, <laughs> wait, a minute, wait, a minute, wait, wait, didn't you just say I could do this with pencil and paper? Because my my pencil and paper don't have a cropping tool. I have an eraser. Can I use that? Like." I'm like, first, you need to figure out how to actually teach kids how to draw. And secondly, why are we teaching kids how to draw them when they're like, they're not animated by hand in the movie? So I'm just, I'm so confused as to why this special feature exists. Shouldn't it be like how to sculpt one? Yeah, that would be interesting. That would be more interesting. And then there's nothing about the actual making of the movie. Weird. And I'm like, how are you going to release a 50th anniversary edition that 
doesn't have anything about the actual making of the movie. Boys in the making of, well, we need another Christmas special, so we sat around and moved things in tiny increments for a year. The end. I would be okay with that if they at least gave us some information about it. Like, there's this thing that's like 30 days of Rudolph. It's like an advent calendar come to life, and like every number corresponds. But it's not really behind-the-scenes stuff as much as much as it's like, there are seven, seven original songs in the special. I'm like... Yeah, that's not trivia. That's just you that's counting just a fact. them. You just counting them. Like four. Every elf has four fingers. I'm like, that's not behind the scenes. That's just shit you're counting and pointing <laughs> out. Like, yeah. So I don't understand why there's not a single special feature that's actually about the making of Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. And instead, it's just like if you didn't buy the set and you don't like the other movies in that Blu-ray holiday set, fine. Here it is by itself on Blu-ray. And again, the transfer looks good. But beyond that, there's 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 not a lot to to sing about with this particular release. No. Oh. I will let it join in my reindeer games, but uh, maybe just dodgeball. But no snowball games. <laughs> my what? Snowball games. Well, let's not talk about that. That's a different thing. <laughs> well, that means hey, we just we just got our audience back that were scared off by Stepper Ball in. Yep. yep. Hey! By making filthy jokes in reference to Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. We That's are terrible people. Us. <laughs> Why am I such a pervert? <laughs> I should probably revert to talking about the dog, which is our uh, last title of the day and also our giveaway. Yes. So we have two Blu-ray copies of the dog, which is a uh, documentary that's been released by Draft House Films. In fact. Hiya, Tim. Hello. All about uh, the, the actual person who the movie Dog Day Afternoon is, is based upon John Wadowitz. Is believe is how you pronounce his last name. They they say it a lot in the movie, and I'm still just like, watch Hobbajabal. Uh yes, John Wadowitz was the the actual um New York native that decided to he's a very very interesting life. Um who decided to rob a, a bank in uh in Brooklyn because he was trying to get money for his lover to get a sex change operation. Now, if you've seen the Sidney Lumet film Dog Day Afternoon, it won, you know, best picture. It's a, it's a classic film. This kind of takes us through the life of the actual John Wadowitz, who was renamed Sonny in the movie for some reason. Um, so this is all about following this guy and uh, some surprises. Definitely some surprises within the story that I was not expecting because I didn't know anything about this guy. But it takes us through his life of um, joining the service, coming back from the service, getting married, and then immediately figuring out that he was a homosexual. And not so much divorcing his wife as going out and marrying a man and having another wife. And then this happened to him several points in his life where he would just get married to people. Yeah. Regardless of the legality of, you know, it's like you're still married. The city is not recognizing gay marriage. But it's like, no, this is my wife. And that's my wife. And that's my wife. And it's like, what are you, a Mormon compound? (laughs) But but he is um what is the what is the nice way to describe John Wadowitz? Cuckoo bananas. <laughs> he was completely cuckoo bananas. And this documentary just kind of follows him around as he talks very openly and very candidly about various sexual conquests that he's had and some of them like just downright like we were talking about Oz before. Yeah. Some of them are downright like Oz, like, oh, we were gonna do the robbery, and I was like, Well, you're getting a cut of the robbery, so uh you're gonna fuck me. Yeah. And the guy was like, I don't wanna do that, and he goes, Well, too bad. And it's like I think you just described rape. Yeah. I think that's exactly what just happened there. He's he's 
an odd degenerate. Yes. This is the thing about him. He is a guy who basically has gone, I'm going to do what I want to do in life and I don't really care about the consequences right. for either myself or for anybody around me. And you really feel like, oh, yeah, I get caught for armed robbery. I'm going to go to jail. I don't really care. You know, as long as my wife manages to, you know, finally fully trans- surgically transition, uh, that's all I care about. Yeah. And I, kind of a man of very odd principles. Very much so. But at the same time, a, a bully and a liar and a thug. Yeah. And he, and he is undoubtedly thuggish, but then he's kind of this weird figure who, you know, comes out of, you know, the, this very urban, macho New York culture. Uh, but then he's goes, Oh, I'm going to hang around Stonewall. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, and it is a depiction of you know, what you know uh, New York gay life in the in the sixties and the very early seventies. Um, but then it, at the same time, it's it's him telling his story, and it was shot over a couple of years, and he gets he is getting sicker and sicker and sicker as yeah. the film goes on. There's one point. He's a heavy set dude through most of the movie, and then at one point they cut back to him, and he just looks skeletal. And it's like, he looks like his own grandfather. What the fuck? It was it was the most insane, and it wasn't. I mean, he had talked about how he had, he was uh, going through cancer treatments, but that cut is one of the most dramatic things in the whole movie. It's like, but oh he's my still God. him. He yes, knows, he's still he, very much him. It's a really interesting story about a man who absolutely took life on on his own terms and did it to the grave and was actually celebrated as kind of a, a folk hero yeah you know for beating Just the system the by, thing. and it's like you know he's not really he's not heroic but he buys into his own celebrity as yeah. well but it, it but he still had a tragic life and a sad life he's been you know on the verge of homelessness for a long time and it's just so it you feel for him you do feel bad for him but you know every time he talks and tells you a story you're just like yeah, you're just there's something not right about you. You like you're kind of a a, a sociopath. Yeah, and but it's fascinating being in his company for yeah. for basically two hours. This is a really extraordinary documentary. Yeah, because it is one of these things where you go, well, hang on, there's a you know this is a, the the film of his life was kind of radical and extraordinary, but still had to take edges off him because exactly he's. he's He's charming, but not likable. Right. And that's, a, I think that's a really powerful part of this film that they, they never fall for his own romance about himself. Yeah. They, they, you know, cause every time he tells you a story, you get halfway through and go, yeah. Well, it's funny too. If you watch this movie as just a complete right wing conservative and you realize that his homosexuality is the least degenerative thing about him. <laughs> No, that's actually one of the more normal things about him. It's yeah. everything else that makes him a fucking degenerate. Yeah, he has this fascinating line at the, mo- at the, at the beginning where he basically says, look, I mean, the people people think you can't love lots of people at the same time. I do. Yeah. You know, and I think he genuinely, you know, he loved his wife in his kind of macho, you know, kind of leave it to beaver way. Mm. And he loved all his other wives. And I think he was in love with with every man that he loved as well. Mm-hmm. But he his definition of love, I think, is is under it's undercut with kind of power and violence and a selfishness right. that you're kind of like you are millimeters away from being a legitimately good person. Right. But those millimeters make all the difference. But he's it's- not malicious. I think he just doesn't get that other people have. Needs and it's really right. fascinating watching that because it, then it it still doesn't make him a huge cartoon villain. He you know, you really feel for this guy who has you know lived his life the way he wanted to live it and mm-hmm. goes out the way he wanted to live it and you kind of, and that's fascinating. 
Yeah, and it, it does make for a fascinating documentary, and we have two copies to give away. And as you may know, we do our giveaways via Twitter now, so you're going to follow us at one of us net on Twitter. And then, uh, do you mind if I take the lead on this one? Go right ahead, go right ahead. I have an idea. So I want you to imagine that every movie you've ever seen is based on a true story. Every movie you've ever seen is actually based on a true story. Now, I want you to pick one of those movies and come up with the name and then colon the whoever, whoever story for the documentary based on that same person. I'll give you an example. Um, Candy and Touchins, the Willy Wonka story. <laughs> like, so that's what I want you to do. I want you to come up with the name of the documentary about the real person behind every movie character you, any, any given movie character you've ever seen and then colon that character's name story. Forceful Family, the Skywalker Saga. Exactly. There That's what go. I'm talking about. And you're going to hashtag that dog giveaway. We'll pick our favorite two, and those people will get sent Blu-rays. Open to U.S. residents only. Really sorry about that. Oh, Thanks for listening to Digital Noise. We've reached the end of the episode. Aww. And now the time is near, and so you face the final punning. Oh, God. <laughs> get on with it. From A to Z, I make bad jokes that send my friend Richard running. <sighs> Should I go on? No. <laughs> I don't think it's going to stop you me saying that, though, is it? Never <laughs> we asked did before. this show my way. Ooh, get off the stage. Ooh, okay, I'm off. So thank you so much for joining us. Once again, you can follow us on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast or the website at one of us net. You can also follow us individually. I'm at BryGuySalisbury. And I'm at YorkshireTX. Yorkshire spelled Y-O-R-K-S-H-I-R-E. Yeah, the only way you should spell it. Yorkshire. You heathen. <laughs> And uh, don't forget to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. And please do use those Amazon links, and please do consider becoming a subscriber. We really would appreciate it. But uh, for Richard, this is Brian. I'm going to sign off the way I always do, reminding you that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Ta-ta for now. (laughs) 